You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 Triple R FM in Melbourne, Australia. Hello and welcome to Plato's Cave, a Triple R film criticism show and podcast. A big thank you to Kate Kingsmill for the last three hours of maps. I'm Sally Christie, and in the cave with me tonight we have Cerise Howard. Welcome back, Cerise. Hello. You've been jet setting? Yes, but well, my jet setting days are over. Are they not? No, they're not. Are they? <laughs> no way. But you're in Melbourne for the moment, and we're glad to have you here. Oh, shucks. <laughs> and also, a big welcome to Emma Westwood. Hello, Sally. Hello. Hello, Cerise. Hello, Hello Carl. And Carl. There's Carl on the other. He, he's the silent member of the. He's like, which Marx brother was the silent Marx brother? No one can remember. Z- uh, wasn't Zeppo? Um, was, it, was it Chico? Groucho? It was Harpo. Harpo. He's our Harpo. Okay, Carl's our Harpo. Just Oprah backwards. Just say. <laughs> yes. So on tonight's show, uh, we are going to take a journey back to 1971 with Jess Franco's vampire erotica classic, Vampiros Lesbos. Um, We are also going to look at the latest James Wan production, The Curse of the Weeping Woman. But the first film we're going to talk about this evening is um, this movie created lots of buzz at MIF last year. I didn't get to see it there and I'm glad that it's got a release. Uh, It's a South Korean thriller, Burning. So Burning is Lee Chan Dong's latest and it's based on the wonderful um, Haruki um, um, Murakami Murakami's um, short story Barn Burning. So the story centres on uh, John Su who runs into Hei Mi, a girl who once lived in his neighbourhood and she asks him to watch her cat while he's out of town. So when she returns she introduces him to Ben, a man that she met on a trip. And Ben proceeds to tell uh, John Sue about his hobby, and things begin to get a little bit sinister. Um, Cerise, tell us a little bit about Burning. Well, what you thought about Burning? Well, I come to this show quite fresh from a screening of it this very afternoon. Quite a full house at Cinema Nova, even, I should say. Which yeah, is I saw very... it there last night. Yeah. It was very, very busy, yeah, too. I, I, I went to a different cinema last night, and it was a, a good attendance as well, which is great to see. Mm. So that makes us redundant, really. Our work yeah. here is done. <laughs> Bye, folks. Yeah. See you. Um, burning. Lee Chang Dong. Uh, interesting filmmaker, interesting human being, Um I've seen a couple of his prior films. There was a little retrospective of his work at the Melbourne Cinematheque a few years ago. And um, his most recent film, Poetry, was actually came out about, I think, eight, seven or eight years ago. It's quite a, a distance between each of his films. And that might be partly because he's a, a real polymath. Um, he's a, a writer himself, like Jong Su, the character, the lead in this. I don't know. If, I've never read the, the source material the murakami book i don't I know have. if that is the character a writer in yes. that as well yes. and is the book good it's not a book it's a short story in fact everyone can get it online it's only 13 pages long mm. Mm. 13 pages long turned into a two and a half hour film yeah it would definitely be quicker to read yes. that than to see the film <laughs> but he yes he is he is a writer in it um there are a lot of liberties taken ah. let's shall we say in the film version but um, not a bad idea to take those liberties. Yeah. Well, yeah. This is a real slow burn thriller, if you will. Oh, uh, I wrote that in oh, my did notes. did you? Well, <laughs> suffering your jocks. <laughs> slow yeah. burning. Yeah. Well, his, his films generally have a languid pace. Um, poetry, uh, like this one, uh, teases out its themes very slowly and gently, but the themes often tend to 
really accumulate quite a bit of weight by towards the end of his films. Poetry dealt with a an elderly woman who discovers that her beloved son is um, a party to a, a dreadful crime, and while she tries to to contend with that emotionally and uh, legally or almost sort of illegally actually she um, is coming down with Alzheimer's disease and trying to find her way in the world and discovering poetry as a means of coping and it's a very poetic film and and this film too has that sort of same a similar sort of quality and there's a lot of angst in this film there's a, a lot that is a little opaque it takes quite a while to really come to terms with what any of these characters really are about because they're they're drawn in such peculiar ways i found it really difficult to get a handle on their various motivations which i think is probably perfectly deliberate but this ben who is explicitly identified as a sort of gatsby type character Mm -hmm. and the commentary within the film is that korea these days is full of gatsby's these rich young things who who knows what it is they even do he plays that's what he says doesn't he? he says i play yeah but he also seems to be something of a, a hobbyist firebug, or, or <laughs> yeah, just though with a very particular focus to his pyromania. Apparently, it's a, a curious character, but yeah. he clearly moves in some fairly chintzy circles. Has a bunch of shallow friends who bore him, yet he invites them round for dinner parties. Um, yeah, what, what's he all about? What's what's the girl all about? This bizarre love triangle at the heart of this film. Uh, Hamy, I think her name was. Who asks uh, Jong Su to look after her cat? Um, what's she all about? Does she make up stories? Did she really fall down a well when she was a child? And if she did, so what? Do we yes. care? Do we even <laughs> like her? Is anyone in this film likable? Does that matter? What matters, Emma? Discuss. <laughs> yes. I think it's it, Murakami is you know such a respected author and I I do love his work as well I think he's just amazing but he is um, seen as being an unfilmable uh, author uh, has anyone seen Norwegian Wood hated it with a uh, yeah. uh, the heat of a thousand suns <laughs> yeah there there you go I think that's uh, what a lot of Murakami fans thought about that that film as well and. What uh, Lee Tan Dong has done here, which I think is just very, very smart, because this idea of adapting literature to film is often fraught with um, uh, problems because there is a depth to literature that's often hard to get in film. Also, there's just a, a level of imagination. when You know, when you're showing something explicitly, it can be harder to get that level of imagination and to Take a, a very um, sparse Murakami text that's 13 pages long and expand on that world and expand out in other ways, I think is incredibly smart to do. Also, I, you either do that or I think it was John Waters who actually mentioned about if you adapt a piece of literature, you take a good idea that has been executed badly and then make it into a great film. Uh, so w- watching this, I actually watched it and then went and read the, the short story because this feels like such a Korean film um, and Murakami being a Japanese actor, uh, uh, writer, uh, and the relationship between Korea and Japan, 
I wasn't entirely sure what was brought in by uh, Lee Chan Don and what was brought in by Murakami, but it is just the kernel of the idea, the universal um, story of, uh, which is a thriller. It's an unusual thriller because it's um, slow, very slow burn, as, as Cerise has already mentioned, and we can't really see... Um, it doesn't necessarily start as a thriller. It starts as sort of the relationship drama and then the thriller aspect is kind of created, I think, in the main character's mind, mm. shall we say, which is really interesting. That is the kernel of the of the short as well. So it comes it's a film that comes through to a definite resolution yet there are still so many strands that are left up in the open like i don't know whether you guys felt this but i don't even know whether that cat was that he was feeding was actually there there was cat poop can I ask but, you a question? Because I am a fan of Murakami. I yes. really, really love his writing. I haven't read um, Barn, Barn Burning. Burning. Is there a Cat Noel in it? No. Okay. So this is. I really appreciated this then because one thing that I love about Murakami's writing is that a lot of his stories centre around cats, and they are the kind, and they're the sort of the instigators to the big plot points. Unraveling is around cats, and also a lot of them centre around wells too. So I thought I must read because I only saw this last night, and I thought, okay, I've got to go and read this because is he taking liberties and just taking these key sort of tropes of Murakami's writing and placing them into his film, which is really interesting that he is, and really quite amazing if you know that sort of doesn't I think appear it in is a, story. it's a remarkable adaptation mm. I think this is where this it's got literary depth yep. shall we say and this is this is the experience of watching this film the way it it's a very it is a long film two and a half hours and I'm very critical of long films but for some reason it worked in this sense to create that level of literary depth and the way that it's it's the the energy of the film and the, the slow movement of the film into different headspaces. I thought was mm. just incredible. I, I I don't know how you can construct this. There was a there was a scene where she was stoned dancing, mm. and there was some um, jazz music playing. Not and just jazz music, but music from "Lift to the Gallows." That reminds me <gasps> from Miles Davis's well, score. All right, mm. that is taken from the short story. They talk about playing Miles Davis. Oh, okay, they don't mm-hmm. say that particular piece from the Louis Marr film, mm. but they talk about playing Miles Davis. Mm. And she, the mime, the tangerine peeling mime is in the short story and she kind of brings that sort of shadowy mime into this sequence. And there's something about, I just watched this scene unfold and went, how do you create this scene? How do you direct this? Is it, it's the music, her performance, her, the camera work, the direction, I can't, I can't actually see the kernel where that comes together to create the magic, but it was just so magic. Mm. I also feel that I'm highly critical of long films, but I felt that the the length of this film was necessary. The amount of character development that we had for Ben and for Yong-Soo was really incredible and really sort of, like you said, we're saying Emma added that depth that was really needed. But it was... I am going to say it again. It was a slow burn. (laughs) It was a slow burn. But um, it's 
still kept me totally engaged and curious the entire time as to what was going to happen, where this was going. And because we... None of these intentions for these characters are made clear. Like uh, with um, Hayami and Yongsu, we don't know the nature of their relationship. We're never necessarily told the nature of her relationship with Ben either. We're only kind of left guessing. And, yeah, it's a very interesting way that it plays out. And, by God, it was just shot beautifully, like absolutely breathtaking film. I loved it. Really, really loved it. So there's all these elements in there that seem to be quite red herring-like. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe they're in the, the source material again i don't know his parents are they in the in the no source? no because yep. there's this whole little subplot that really seems quite disconnected about his father and yep. his and then yeah his mother temper tantrum yep. induced um mm. violent outbursts that lead him into court at intervals it seems mm. yes the mother who's mm. almost entirely absent but not entirely and had a she, fantastic suit on yeah but. and it has a <laughs> has a very peculiar little cameo it's a really awkward interaction mm. so there's there's a lot there that does flesh out a universe and it does convince it does seem like a real world they're just a, they're just such odd people mm. yeah. but not in your face flamboyantly no odd, just a bit completely a bit off kilter and completely disconnected from each other as well like yeah, there felt no kind of sense of intimacy between any of the three main characters that we had there it was this there's obviously i guess some kind of sexual desire but the intimacy wasn't there and i, once, no. I think that was intentional yeah mm. the, the, a whole lot of secret parts of the film that i feel like i want to want to watch it again and see if there was um because uh, the, the the film didn't feel like it was putting anything in there that was superfluous, let's say. But mm-hmm. what was that about her window um, only getting light that is reflected from the soul tower? That felt very pointed to me. And that during an intimate moment between them where he sees that light come through into the, the, the wardrobe, her wardrobe of her very, very tiny little apartment um it, it seems to mean something but i don't know what yeah and the, well there's something made of the city country class divide there yeah. that, that that's a little clearer than many other aspects of this this film's universe but then it doesn't matter that the the sort of rural area where jong su still tills the land and looks after some cattle and in his father's absence does it matter that's near the north korean border i don't know that it does but it seems kind of a relevant thing to mention. Yeah, it seems irrelevant, like a, a but then it's. But I don't know why. But it's then relevant. they're talking about the propaganda messages that are being that he, they could hear across the the border. Maybe it meant more that the Ben character, the very privileged Ben character, didn't know what they were. You know that he was removed from that. Mm. It's a film that you just there's. There's so much there and it felt like it was going through down a certain path. To know it was a thriller, to know it was... To walk into there and know it was a thriller, I think for the first hour I was almost thinking I was in a wrong film. Yes, yeah. (laughs) But then there is actually a car chase. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, again, it's a slow one, but it's it's still very suspenseful. You don't have to drive cars quickly in order for things to be suspenseful. There's a lesson there for a lot of filmmakers. That's true. You don't have to cut frequently either. Just just keep having someone stalk someone else and have you... The audience wondering well, why suspense. I do, I do think is this generated. movie was incredibly suspenseful, like the in the entire time, because you do go in there knowing it's a thriller, but it's this, I guess, this lack of you know dynamic the knowledge of dynamics between these three 
people in there that you don't know what's and the going level, on. And with the, the unfolding of Ben, you, you, you could – is he a psychopath? Isn't he a psychopath? He's neat. He's very neat. He's neat like yes. um, Jack in Lars von Trier's film. <laughs> <laughs> and he has no emotion. He talks about uh, not yeah. feeling sadness and not crying. Never crying, yeah. Very interesting film. But it was. It was a great film. Mm. So Burning is currently screening at all good independent cinemas. Three triple R. You're listening to Plato's Cave on Three Triple R with Cerise Howard, Emma Westwood, and myself, Sally Christie. And just prior to our sponsors, you heard The Lions and the Cucumber by Manfred Hubler and Siegfried Schwab, which features on the soundtrack to Vampiros Lesbos. But also, what were the lions doing with the cucumbers? I don't, don't quite know. Emma. <laughs> but also features on the soundtrack to Quentin Tarantino's Jackie Brown. Um, so our retrospective film for this week, Emma Selected. It was your birthday film, I think. It, it is my birthday, <laughs> birthday film. film. Happy birthday, Emma. Happy birthday to you. <laughs> Which is Vampiros Lesbos. So it tells the story of Linda Westinghouse, an American living in Istanbul. So after having a recurring dream, which she is seduced by a gorgeous vampire, Linda is sent to a small island for her work. There she meets and is actually seduced by Countess Nadine, who is played by Soledad Miranda, a dark, beautiful nightclub owner whom she, is, whom she immediately recognises as the seductress from her dreams. Vampiros Lesbos is directed by the wonderful Jess Franco, who throughout his career directed close to 200 films before he died in 2013. Uh, If you're unfamiliar with his work, Franco worked on very minimal budgets across various various genres such as horror, erotica, adventure and... Of course, an old favourite, Nunsploitation. <laughs> <laughs> and how. Yes, and Vampiros Lesbos is often regarded as one of his best films. Um, Emma, thanks for picking this film because, for me, this is just a perfect film. The, what's not to like about it? It's just... Some people might not think the same way well, as you, Sally. <laughs> I think <laughs> describe it. What's a, describe what, it? What would you well, say? Well, it's, it's exactly as the title suggests. It's an erotic film about two... Two women, one of them's a vampire. <laughs> they have some, some nice times together. <laughs> they also... In Istanbul, In Istanbul. No wearing fantastic clothes uh, with fantastic interiors and excellent music playing. <laughs> like, what's not to like about this? I think um, Jess Franco is quite a polar, polarising director. Jess Franco, Jesus Franco... He of Franco many names. Yeah. Uh, he's, yeah. uh, Jess Franco is also in this film for an, in an uncredited role as Mehmet. Yeah. Is he? I didn't realise that. He's yes. usually in there somewhere, often he's playing like a Hitchcock. Yeah, except yeah. he usually has a speaking role and he often plays someone a bit half-witted or he's, <laughs> yes. he doesn't flatter himself in his own films. <laughs> he actually looks like um, a Spanish version of um, Paul Williams. You know, the... the <laughs> <laughs> the, the little blonde. Oh, that's un- singer. unkind to he both. He kind of does. <laughs> he kind of does. In this film, he plays uh, um, Mehmet, this really uh, interesting Turkish fellow whose wife has been seduced by our um, countess, shall we say. Can you remember so he that has, role? He's got quite a substantial role in this. He thing. does. Yeah, he he's has got quite, quite a substantial, substantial role. role. Okay. 
But um, I think that uh, I read a thing. Um, it was actually, I think it was in the Guardian about when Jess Franco's obituary, I think it was, where they talked about not watching uh, Franco films in isolation, really to get a sense of Franco and to appreciate him. You have to watch his entire oeuvre, all 200 films of them, <laughs> because there's something about his movies that come together as uh, a whole body of of work and I think that you you know I, I think Vampiros Lesbos is a wonderful end to his career mm. uh, but it does have a sense of um, what the when you first start say, watching it it's it starts off like um, reminds me of uh, I think it's uh, a lizard in a woman's skin the Lucio Fulci it film. It definitely yeah. feels like a Fulci film when it starts 100% that is yes. definitely this you know when I came back to rewatch this last week I was like this feels like a Fulci film. And and it's, yeah, it's yep. a very erotically charged um, performance piece at the start. But there you... were all these great films at that time where we have these, you know, performance pieces which then are going too far, you know, like Blood Sucking Freaks or Herschel Gordon Lewis. There was all this stuff. And I really love that, this kind of thing where they're playing on stage, is this real, is this not? And there's some beautiful woman in the audience that kind of gets sucked into the reality of it. Literally. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> in this case, it's... Um, uh, totally uncontextualized, and you're just thinking. And even the audience is sort of stony faced and sitting there watching. It has this very strange, strange. Well, definitely, it's an exploitation film, but it also has a sense of the Gialli cinema mm-hmm. of the, of the time. It's very much steeped in the seventies, late sixties, seventies um, uh, stylism aesthetic. It's there's heavily um, influenced sitar music in the soundtrack. It's fantastic, Uh, all of it, just the whole... All the films of its time. And and Franco is really, I think that, you know, if we were to give um, uh, Franco a a psychological profile in a modern sense, he'd definitely be sitting on the spectrum somewhere because as a director, his films are very, very schizophrenic in nature, as in they have literal moments of absolute genius and then just totally bonkers off the wall and he was known for losing interest in his films halfway through the filming (laughs) so he was sometimes he would just not turn up on set because he he was going off onto the next film and the actors and the crew would turn up and they're like where's Jess and he's off on something else he'd actually totally he was someone told me I think it was my my uncle told me that he was known for um, knowing the best three-star accommodation across Europe and Everyone would want to be on a Jess Franco film just so they could go on the holiday as such. <laughs> and, and they didn't even care if they weren't paid at the Did end. Did he release a travel guide? He should have. He should have. I don't know. Yes. <laughs> amazing. Apparently amazing experience working with him, not always um, financially <laughs> compensated for it. But, um, yeah, this crazy... And this film, you can see from the the, the fact that it, they obviously spent a lot of their budget on going to Istanbul, they make sure that they show the Blue Mosque. Yes. I counted about at least six or seven times. Yeah, I it's think, in there it? quite a lot. Yeah. Mm. Well, it is. It makes good use of the setting. I mean, I think everywhere Franco went on his film shoots, and he was often making multiple films at once, he <laughs> would shoot exteriors the entire time they were travelling. So he'd always have some great footage of castle exteriors or fabulous in this case, beachside, um, uh, you know, it's this stunning. Now it's gone. stunning. But this is, 
just to come back to the film again for a moment before we st- uh, I start getting excited about all the sort of lore around Franco because it's, it's pretty amazing. But this film is actually a genuinely odd vampire film. It all mm. takes place in daylight. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. one thing that I really enjoy about this too is that you get thrown off as an audience member watching this because yeah. you see Nadine straight away and she's sunbaking. Yeah. Yeah, which yeah, I yeah. really like. So you do have these nightclub acts and like so many of Franco's films, it either starts with one or has them prominently and it's a very peculiar one with Soledad Miranda having her way with Maybe it's a mannequin. Is it a person? It's, yeah, we don't know. Yeah, it's all, and it's, it's stunningly shot. And he always put a lot of energy, at least on any given film, into those nightclub sequences. And yes, often there is a stony-faced audience just sitting around in a sort of cabaret setting, smoking and just looking kind of hip but bored, or, or just yeah, out of it in some way. But there's there's all sorts of stuff here that that plays with vampire imagery and just shifts it a bit. So instead of bats, we have lots of kites in the sky during mm-hmm. the day. There's all sorts of just little little takes on, on what very familiar scorpions. Yeah, as well, the scorpion he, is shown a lot. There's yep. also it's not a stake through the heart. It's more of the I think the kill is through the brain, isn't it? Mm. It's um, to to kill someone in the head, which is very unvampiric. Yeah. Shall but, we say? Yeah, but there was a real vogue for lesbian vampires around this time mm-hmm. as well. It was um, that became one of the the fads of exploitation cinema. They'd, they'd come in waves, and lesbian vampires, whether it was from Hammer in England or um, other Spanish filmmakers like uh, Jose Larraz with his great Vampires with a Y. That's mm-hmm. how you know they're lesbians. You use a Y. <laughs> use think. a Y in there. Yeah, or Daughters of Darkness, one of my real faves. It's I an love incredible yeah, film. film. Yes. Um, and film. all of them sort of straddling this art house exploitation divide as well. I mean, these films were, as, as much as they were cheap, I mean, Franco could be genuinely arty and create a really convincing, surrealist atmosphere. He, he, he just had a certain magic, even though he would manically overuse his zoom lenses and uh, sometimes seemed like some of the shots were really throwaway. It always added up to a quite magical, peculiar, dreamy atmosphere in his his films. And as you said, Emma, when you watch several of them, you, you sort of get this cumulative effect. And, and part of that dreaminess is accentuated by the fact you often get a lot of people who were once big stars in other cinema in Hollywood or in, in Britain, slumming it in these films and clearly having a ball, <laughs> whether yeah. it's Christopher Lee or Klaus Kinski or, um, yeah. in this case, Dennis Price in this film, a, a, a renowned British thespian of the old school. You know, they're just clearly having a whale of a time just being as loose as possible. <laughs> and it's just such a joy to, to I see can that. See, I, I can see a lot at the, with Vampirous Lesbos as well, the, that link with the Hammer cinema of the time and see Christopher Lee is obviously a great link between Franco Those and ones, Hammer. Yeah. And the way that uh, this film plays out in daylight but then also the interior scenes, there's nothing gloomy about them. They're really brightly lit, which is something that was very uh, distinctively 1960s Hammer especially. You wanted to see all this glorious colour. It wasn't yeah. about, it wasn't the goth vampire. It was about the, you know, the the colour of the blood, this brilliant blood and um, also beautiful backdrops and sets. There's and also incredible costumes and makeup well, and oh, hair and just... This costuming where she has goodness. that incredible, um, Soledad Miranda is wearing this incredible red scarf that is kind of acts like this gush of blood mm. on her, around her neck and then this centrepiece and that sort of modernistic very 
uber modern look of the time that is played out a, a lot in the European um, uh, exploitation cinema, shall we say, of the time, where she, uh, in particular here, she has this incredible centrepiece, which is like blood dripping from the roof. Um, I know, I looked at that. I was it, like, God, it's I'd it's love incredible. That in my home. It looks incredible. I just, I think <laughs> this film is just almost for me a perfect film. I love it so much. <laughs> I just think everything works. And it's interesting because I saw that Paul Anthony Nelson, who will be returning to Plato's next week, um, on a forum somewhere that I saw that he gave this one star. <gasps> so- Did he? <laughs> All right. Just, what a well, shame you don't have Paul that, today. Well, that we don't have Paul to see. We're well, all singing its well, praises. Paul, may we suggest you see as many as at least another nine Franco films and then reform yes. your opinion because really, yeah. Yeah, at least watch the, the six films he made that year. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, he, he made a few others with Soledad Miranda and she... She was uh, his muse. Yeah, she yeah. was and she mm. died tragically very yeah. young. I think only in her, still in her 20s yes. on the cusp of she becoming d- a major star. She died uh, in the, the, you know, the tragic celebrity age of 27 yeah. in a car accident. Yep. So, yeah. Yeah, and, and Franco was said to have been absolutely devastated by this. Um, and if anything, he just started making more films after that. I think it really set him off into a fully manic episode that lasted the rest of his career. Mm. Um, I think we've probably got to wrap this up in a moment, do we? But I would love to. We should just do a whole side well, we really bar should. on vampire lesbian films. We could do all the Hammer ones. Oh, it'd be great. <laughs> but we should just just very quickly. Franco Orson Welles. There's a connection that can be talked about that another day, perhaps. But he did do second um, unit direction That's on. Right. I think mm-hmm. it was Chimes at Midnight. Yes, yeah. There are amazing stories around Franco. So many. But the other thing I would suggest any listener out there wants to do, wants to know a little bit about Franco, look at the Goya Awards Lifetime Achievement Award for Franco of a few years back, not long before he died. He's wheeled onto the stage by Lena Ramey, his longtime partner, framed in a fashion that only I would have thought he could have come up with, where <laughs> we just see her incredibly bosomy self spilling out all over him from behind as he's wheeled onto stage. And then the most amazing awards show montage of all time, as we see just something of his 200-odd films in, in Fast Forward, all the titles flashing briefly, and it's... Uh, incredible and and the most <laughs> lurid thing any awards show I think has ever run with the the idea of the Oscars ever running with something half as entertaining or as bonkers or as uh, heavily R rated as that is, is unimaginable. <laughs> I'm going to watch that. That's hysterical. Um, if you are inclined to watch Vampiros Lesbos, and I think we all highly recommend that you do, it is currently streaming on SBS on demand, so it's easily accessible. Three. You're listening to Plato's Cave on 3RRR with Cerise Howard, Emma Westwood and myself, Sally Christie. So far this evening, we have discussed Burning, which is Lee Chan Dong's latest film, and that is screening at all good independent cinemas. And we just discussed Jess Franco's wonderful Vampiros Lesbos, which is streaming on SBS On Demand. Um, Before we get into our final film for the evening, I'm just going to talk a little bit about April Amnesty. So for those those of you that didn't get the chance to subscribe to Triple R during Radiothon, April is a great time to do it. Um, we're all volunteers here and the station, you know, thrives on your subscriptions. That's why we're here. So it is so important to keeping us going. Um, also, if you subscribe during April Amnesty, you've got the chance to win some great prizes. Cerise? 
What are some of those prizes? True. <laughs> uh, one such prize is a mini pass to the 2019 Melbourne International Film Festival, providing admission for one lucky person to any 10 festival sessions plus three bonus weekday sessions before 5 p.m. Nice. It's a good prize. It's pretty good. Mm. Or um, annual subscriptions for three lucky winners to Crikey, Australia's best independent journalism. Crikey tax readers beyond the mainstream media, beyond the clickbait and beyond the predictability of much modern journalism. Or Northside Records. Shout out to Chris Gill. A gift voucher for records old and new from Northside Records located on Gertrude Street in Fitzroy. Northside Records has been satisfying Melbourne's taste for soul and funk, especially on vinyl since 2002. And I would wager stay he would... Stay groovy. Stay groovy and ask for that Vampiros Lesbos soundtrack when next you're in. <laughs> so that's just a few of the many prizes you could win. If you want to have a little peruse or subscribe, go to triplerr.org.au. Um, the final film that we're going to be discussing this evening is The Curse of the Weeping Woman. So in 1970s Los Angeles, the legendary ghost La Yoronda is Yorona. Yorona, not yeah. my Sharona. Not my Sharonda. Okay. Not my Sharonda. <laughs> so is stalking the night and the children. So ignoring the eerie warning of a troubled mother, a social worker and her own kids are drawn into a frightening supernatural realm. Their only hope of surviving um, La Yoronda's deadly wrath is <laughs> <laughs> Who's Deadly Wrath? My Sharona's Deadly Wrath. La Ronda is actually the round in Spanish. Okay. So that has uh, that's what you're saying, Sally. Okay. Yorona's weeping. Okay. All right. (laughs) Not my first language. No, it's not mine either. (laughs) It's a dissolution. Wrath is a dissolution. Priests who practices mysticism to keep evil at bay. Um, I actually didn't get a chance to see this. So, uh, Emma, I know that you really were taken by this film. I was quite taken yep. by this film. I, I probably was taken by this film in the context of what's going on with horror at the moment in cinema. We've got this whole talk, and probably people have heard it, uh, a lot's been thrown around about elevated horror. Not elevator horror, elevated <laughs> horror, which I find is a really annoying term because really elevated horror just is another way of trying to say good horror as opposed to bad horror um, and trying to make it sound something that's not the horror genre. We have this great backlash against the horror genre at the moment. Um and I think that there's a lot, with, like with something like Us, didn't quite... Well, do, it's, do you really think there's a backlash? I think I it's think a good is. time for horror. I think it's more that people aren't... Uh, it's more semantics. People aren't willing to uh, consider certain films part of the horror genre because they don't want to think of it as being part of the I horror genre. I think that's genre. something that's been consistent throughout cinema, though. I don't think that's a new thing, I personally. Yeah, well, it's always been there, know. but I guess it's just with bringing in this term elevated horror um, that is the more... Uh, yeah, the more pointed example of it, and and things like us, I guess, films that are being now uh, or Get Out being being nominated for Academy Awards. We've got we're starting to get horror movies again creeping into Academy Awards, and people don't want to call them horror. Well, to Get Out for a Golden Globe was nominated as a comedy, wasn't it? Yeah, there was something. Yeah, under yeah, comedy and under musical. comedy, and then we have things like Silence of the Lambs is a thriller and that yeah a horror movie and the mm. exorcist was what a family drama 
I don't know. A rom-com. A rom-com. A rom-com. Anyway, anyway, anywho, what I I liked about uh, Curse of the Weeping Woman is that it is just, uh, it doesn't try to uh, revolutionise horror. It takes horror genre conventions uh, and it uh, does them well let's say. And we talked a little bit when we were talking about us in this idea of a really good setups in horror and then falling down in the third act. And that's something that happens quite quite a bit, unfortunately. This was a film that remained consistent from start to finish, I felt. And I like this idea playing with folkloric uh, legend and myth, This, in this case being a Hispanic myth and a, and a monster, Although in this case, strangely enough, I didn't find... I wasn't as enamoured with her, the weeping woman herself, as the monster, but I liked the all the setups. I actually found this to be a genuinely scary movie, even though it does play a lot on jump scares, but it does... It, it's, it didn't feel cheap in its jump scares to me. Mm-hmm. It, it manages to create something a little more sophisticated without trying to be overly intellectual. And all the performances are great. I love Linda Cardellini. She was in Green Book this year. This is this is much more the performance I enjoy seeing her in, <laughs> let's just say. Uh, and it also had some really interesting things to say around um, mother guilt and mother plight, which often plays out very well in horror, horror and has played out in horror across numerous generations but has come up um, more frequently in recent years, especially here in Australia with something like the Babadook. So, yeah, I, I think that in terms of... I don't think anyone would call this an elevated horror movie, but for my, in my opinion, I think a lot of good horror is elevated anyway and it has a lot to say about society and different things. Discuss. Oh, that's my Discuss. cue. It's your Celeste. cue. Um, yeah. I was going to call you Celeste. Cerise. Sure, that's I can be Celeste. Oh, that's next week's show. Yes, that's next week's show. Yeah. Next week I will be Celeste. <laughs> and this is, a, this is an interesting, entertaining enough little film that, like a lot of horror, actually has some incredibly conservative elements woven into its fabric. Mm-hmm. This calls upon the patriarchy to um, to dispel an evil that is uh, born of women only. This is, you know, it's very churchy. The church are central to this film's narrative, as and, uh, both a, a good priest and a rogue priest. A rogue <laughs> priest. <laughs> a rogue priest who's become some sort of faith healer or some such. Um, it's, it's curious that 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 there's an evil that um, that seems to have been born, an evil spirit born of an evil act perpetrated by a human being seemingly not under the influence of an evil spirit. So I'm not quite clear what the message is here, that evil is done by people possessed or evil just exists and humans can succumb to it in fits of jealousy and rage or a bit of a combination of both. Um, quite what is evil, Emma? <laughs> I, look, I look to you as an authority on this because you are... Wicked. <laughs> I'm wicked. <laughs> wicked Westwood. The wicked, wicked, wicked witch of the West. That's me. Uh, I, I think when you bring, strangely, well, not strangely, a lot of folkloric stuff is born from a great conservatism and um, a, a way of, I think, keeping people, uh, keeping people, 
um, contained, shall we say. And being a Hispanic, uh, Hispanic myth, this one, uh, and, you know, Hispanic culture is incredibly conservative, especially as a highly Catholic um, culture. And this being... But even, even um, organised religious cultures have this pagan aspect to them. Uh, I think the 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 idea of the keeping of the mother in in line I like the way that this played out with the, the the social worker looking at a mother who appears to be abusing her children but in instead is actually trying to protect them mm-hmm. I like that this idea of maybe the judgment of women um, this is what I felt it was talking about how it could be uh, women can be judged for especially as mothers for doing things um, in a certain way um, but really it's all about survival and about survival of the family as well but um, this also is a film I think it's I've seen the original of this film when when I say original it's um, uh, it was made in 1963 it was called Curse of the Crying Woman or in Spanish I won't even try and oh, go say on, it go on, go on. give it a crack La Maledicion de la Llorona Perfect. How about that? <laughs> by by another. It's just interesting. We're talking about Jess Franco tonight. Another Spanish rather than Mexican filmmaker, but Rafael Baladon was the maker of this, and he was kind of like a Jess Franco as well, an incredibly prolific mm-hmm. filmmaker. So, and that's a really wonderful little film to check out too, because it it has absolutely nothing to do with this film, but it shows another re uh, a reworking of a classic myth. Um, I think it's important that we point out as well, Sally, you mentioned that this was produced by James Wan. Michael Chavez is the director who's made uh, a number of uh, horror shorts, but this was his debut film and I think his direction is really beautiful and really really frenetic and interesting. Um, I think it's interesting that they chose a Hispanic director to do it and I think he is doing the next Conjuring movie, which is part... This film fits very loosely into the Conjuring okay. universe. Um, I haven't seen all of the Conjuring films, but, but I did enjoy doll, the first one. Annabelle, Annabelle is mentioned. Oh, really? I think yeah. they're trying to create a, a universe of uh, a horror verse. They call it part of the Conjuring universe. The Conjuring universe. Yes. Well, if you're interested in entering into that Conjuring universe, <laughs> The Curse of the Weeping Woman is currently screening on wide release. Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. You've been listening to Plato's Cave on 3RRR with Cerise Howard, Emma Westwood and myself, Sally Christie. On tonight's show, we discussed Burning, which is screening at all good independent cinemas. We also looked at Jess Franco's Vampiros Lesbos, which is streaming currently on SBS On Demand. And finally, we talked about The Curse of the Weeping Woman, which is screening on wide release. In the cave next week, we will be discussing Celeste... Um, and our retro film will be John Frankenheimer's 1966 sci-fi thriller Seconds, also selected by Emma, and a third movie which we haven't quite decided on yet. Another Jess Franco film, surely. <laughs> oh, we should just do one every week. 
for three or four years. Yes, we, can, we can do just a whole Jess Franco show every week and keep on going great. for three or four years. <laughs> so you can subscribe to the Palato's K podcast via iTunes or wherever else you find your favourite podcasts. A huge thank you to Morty Osborne for editing the podcast, to Carl Chapman for panelling, to Lisa Kovacevic for producing the show. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.